The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to open them to the book of Psalms, chapter 67. And I'm continuing to look at a variety of subjects on Sunday nights before we get into our next series. And what I plan to do starting next month, about the middle of next month, is to begin a ten-part series on the subject of living for Jesus. But in the meantime, we're looking at these um, different topics, just um, uh, some, well, I guess you might call them some random, random topics. And, you know, sometimes you can be, actually be stumped about what's the next thing that you should preach. I don't really often have this problem when we're in a series because I'm forced to deal with the next topic that's in hand, and so I have to develop a, a, a sermon around that particular topic. But when it comes to these individual things, sometimes you look at a lot of different material before the Lord actually impresses upon your mind what he wants you to say. Now, the greatest fear that I have, well, the first one is what I told you this morning, was about uh, coming into the pulpit and not really having something that feeds God's people. I mean, I think that's paramount for the preaching uh, of a pastor is that he gives people things that they need and, and uh, helps them to grow in their, in their fellowship and their walk with the Lord. But another fear that I have is that when I actually do decide on the subject that I'm going to preach, that I preach the message and it falls off the end of the table here in front of me and just stays there. And I think sometimes the sermons are like that. Uh, there was a preacher who had a little boy in his congregation, I suppose maybe about four or five years old, and he was talking to the pastor and he said, uh, he said, Pastor, I noticed that many times when you're sitting on the platform that you bow your head before you come to preach. He said, what are you doing? And he said, well, the pastor said, I'm praying that the Lord would give me a good message. And like children do, the child said, well, why doesn't he? And that can be, that can be a, a problem for us. And that's how I feel sometimes about this. Um, I know there are some of you that think that the sermons go a little bit too long. And I've had members come to me, especially one member that comes to me and says, you know, the content is really not too bad, really pretty good content, but the sermons are way too long. I'm not going to mention any names, but I can just tell you that was my wife. She talks like that often. And uh, this is the kind of thing, though, you do face when you're, when you're preaching the Word of God. I'll, t I'll, I'll tell you one more little incident, and we'll, we'll get on with the message. But there was a preacher who uh, was shaving one morning, and he cut his face, and he came to church, and one of the deacons said to him, what happened to your face? And the pastor said, well, I was shaving and I was thinking about my sermon and I cut my face and the deacon said well when you're shaving why don't you think about your face and cut your sermon um, well tonight I do want to speak to you on the 67th psalm and I want to consider this subject God shall bless us and you'll, you'll notice as we read this in just a moment that the title is taken from the seventh verse about God blessing us and I'd like to talk to you from this, from this particular psalm about blessings and to really answer some fundamental questions like why does God bless us and uh, 
who does God bless and what are the result of God's blessings? Now, you really have to follow a little bit closely as we go through this message, and uh, you don't want to let your mind wander off to something else because you're really not going to catch probably all that I want to tell you tonight. So we're going to study the Word of God, and, and it'll be difficult if we don't look at this very closely. So in Psalm 67, beginning in verse number 1, God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah. Everybody remembers what that word Selah means, don't you? It just means, think on this. Pause for a moment. Think about this. That thy way may be known. Let's start again. God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that thy way may be known upon the earth, thy saving health among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon the earth, Selah. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. How many of you want God to bless you? All right, do you really think that it's wrong to pray for a blessing? Is that a selfish reason to pray for yourself and ask God to bless you? Well, I don't think that it is. Uh, In the year 2000, Bruce Wilkinson came out with a book that was on the number, was the number one seller on, or was on that list, the New York Times bestseller list. And this book was called The Prayer of Jabez. And perhaps some of you have read that book. Uh, I do remember, you know, those many years ago when it was popular that I knew some Christians that were just totally, just totally fanatical about this book. They were very enthusiastic about it. People want to find the key to God's blessings, and they picked up this little book, and they thought that Bruce Wilkinson had found the key to God's blessings. And Wilkinson argued in that book that we should seek God's blessings, And he based that upon the prayer of a very obscure character that we find in 1 Chronicles chapter 4. This was a man by the name of Jabez. Now let me read the verse to you. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed, and enlarge my coast, and that thine hand might be be with me, and that thou wouldest keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. And God granted him that which he requested. Now the Bible says that God answered Jabez's prayer. Wilkinson's book was one of those fad items that comes out from time to time. And people in churches were everywhere praying the prayer of Jabez. They thought that Wilkinson had found the key to something here, that he'd found the secret of God's blessings. And we notice that with all religious fads, Now, people have moved on. They've gone on to the next greatest fad. Now there is a new key to the power of the Christian life, and so nobody any longer prays the prayer of Jabez. Why? Well, it's because Wilkinson reached some conclusions that were unscriptural. And when people saw that there really is no key like this, there there really isn't anything like this in the Bible that leads you to lightning quick success, then they stopped praying the prayer of Jabez. Now, the questions, the questions concerning, uh, in this message tonight concerning God's blessings are why did God grant the prayer that Jabez asked? And what is the reason for God's blessing? 
And I'm not going to preach on First Chronicles 4, verse number 10, but what we see in that prayer is really germane to some of the discussion tonight. And I think that there is a way that we can answer those particular questions with scriptural support. That God delights to bless his people, that God is good, and he likes to see good done to them. God himself, in fact, is characteristically good. But there is a fundamental reason why that God blesses his people, and that reason is related to the, to the missionary calling of his church. Now, it's very important for us to understand that because God's blessings revolve around the primary purpose for his church. And really, just to be fair and scriptural about this, that without being a part of God's church the place that Jesus Christ that he loved and gave himself for, without being a part of God's church, we really don't have the right to ask God for a blessing. So let's take a look at Psalm 67. And there are three important considerations about God's blessings. Now first we'll note the inquiry of God's blessings. Now a simple question of the inquiry is this, why should God bless you? Well, this psalm begins in a way that's similar to the prayer of Jabez. But if we compare it to other scriptures, we find that it most closely parallels a blessing from God and a prayer in Numbers chapter 6. And there it says in Numbers 6, verses 24 and 25, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Now that's similar to what we've read here, but Psalm 67 goes deeper than the prayer of Jabez, and it goes deeper than what we find in Numbers chapter 6, and it actually tells us why that God blesses his people. Now let's look again at the first two verses of this psalm. Verse number 1, God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. Now, beginning with those verses, we find our first direction that helps us to answer the inquiry, why does God bless us? And what we see first in the passage is that God blesses us that his ways may be known, that God's ways may be known. Now, the psalmist asks for a blessing that God's ways might be known over all of the earth. And what he says in effect here is, bless me, Lord, or bless me, God, so that I might glorify you. Bless me that I might show your power and your love and your majesty and your goodness to all nations. And you'll notice that the psalmist does not pray to the Lord in this way, that he says, bless me, God, so that I can be comfortable. Oh, God's blessings are not primarily that you might be able to skate through life with the greatest of ease. Now, there are many Christians that want it that way. They hope that they're never going to be confronted with any kind of a problem. And we've talked about this, and as I've stated so many times, the Scriptures teach us that problems for Christians are inevitable. It comes with the territory. Philippians 1.29, the Apostle Paul said, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Now, Christian fads are unscriptural. But there's one that's currently making the circuit that's very popular right now, and that's the idea that it is unbiblical for Christians to suffer. The Word of Faith movement teaches that. They teach that it's unbiblical, that 
What God wants for you is that all of your days would be without trouble. God's always going to bless you so you don't see any problems. And if that's the truth, then Paul was unbiblical, and so was our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God has never told us that he's going to bless us and give us, make sure that we have no problems. Uh, but what he does do, he doesn't relieve us always of problems, but he what does do, he does teach us how to live in those problems, what to do about those problems. And so the psalmist did not say, bless me, Lord, so that I can be comfortable. Next, we notice that he's not saying, bless me so that I don't have to work to make a living. And there are lots of people that would like that too. And they reason, people actually think like this. They reason like this. Well, if I didn't have to work, think of all the great things that I could do for God. Think of how much that I could do. I could be a full-time servant. I could work in the church all of the time and I could do so many things for God. And most of the people think like that don't do anything for God right now. And so if you give them a whole lot of time, they got a whole lot of time, they don't do anything for God. And then people think like this, they... They think, well, you know, I'd really love to be in full-time ministry. And what they want to do is they step out in front of God and they, they, they head out in front of the leadership of the Holy Spirit because this is the thing that they want. And there are people who reason like this. They say, oh, you know, I sure would like to have the pastor's job. Oh, he doesn't have anything to do but preach two sermons on Sunday and teach a class on Wednesday nights. Folks, I tell you something. I am so bored there are five days of the week that I don't have anything at all to do. You, you need to help me to find something to do. I mean, sermons magically appear on my doorstep on Sunday nights. You know that, don't you? i got a fairy wand that creates sermons. Oh, it might seem like the noble thing that you want to be in Christian service, but is that actually, or full-time Christian service, but is that God's design for everybody? Is that what God wants everybody to do? And I'll tell you, the answer to that is no. God needs his people working in the workplace around town. He needs them in factories. He needs them in offices. He, he needs his children at schools. And that's that they might be a witness in a place that somebody like me could never get to. And so, no, it's not always God's plan for everybody to be in full-time Christian service as an occupation. No, God... God says that there's a special people that's called for that. And I don't mean they're special in themselves, but he calls people like pastors that are specially chosen for that purpose. Now, this is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. He said, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel, they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And the beginning of that verse says, even so, and if you want to go back and check the reference there, you'll find that what Paul is writing about is God's choice of priests that are in the Old Testament. Not everybody in the Old Testament was chosen to be a priest. And so the psalmist did not say, God bless me so that my workload load might be lighter. And trust me about this, if you ever do make it into Christian service, full-time Christian service, you're going to be terribly disappointed about the workload. Because it's not light. It's not easy. It's, it's, you don't have a lot of free time on your hands. You know, there's a lot of times in my flesh that I would say, God bless me, give me a 9 to 5 job. Give me, give me some rest sometime. And that, that's the way that, you know, I think sometimes. But then we see that neither did the psalmist say, bless me so that others will be envious of me. 
James said that we could pray wrongfully that way. He said, you ask amiss, uh, or you ask and you receive not, because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. And listen to this very carefully. In asking for a blessing, he's not even primarily saying, bless me so that I can bless others. Now that's really a biblical reason for receiving a blessing from God. It is so that you can bless others. We don't have to look any further than Abraham. What did God say to Abraham? He said, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So that, that's a biblical reason, but that's not the first and not the greatest reason that God blesses us. The real reason, the underlying fundamental reason for the gods, for God blessing us, is that God blesses us to bring glory to his name. Now, did you really think that I was going to steer you in any other direction than that? That I was going to tell you something other than God's blessings are always for His glory. And we always have to remember this, that things that we think that are a blessing are not a blessing unless in some way they always circle back upwards to give God the glory. And so if you have a decision to make or there's something that comes in your life and you say, well, you know, the Lord has really blessed me with this. Well, it might be something that you should have turned down because if it ever takes you away from God's service then you know that it's not really God's blessing. No, God's blessing is always going to show that His way is the way that works. Now, in the second part of finding the answer to the inquiry, it is that God's will may be done. Now, we'll look at the psalm a little bit further and then into other parts of Scripture. And if you look closely at this psalm, you'll find something characteristic of Hebrew literature. Now, much of Hebrew literature is structured with a central point that is in the middle. And then there are ideas that parallel each other that come in, as you get further away from that center of uh, God's attention. Now, sometimes the construction is subtle, but in Psalm 67, it's very obvious to us. Now, you'll note that verses 3 and 5 are not only parallel, but they are identical. And that means that verse number 4 that comes in the center, that is actuary, actually the literary center of this psalm. That's the part that is actually emphasized. So if we move away from the central verse, which is verse number 4, we would expect that we would find that verses 1 and 2 would be parallel with verses 6 and 7. Now we've reread verses 1 and 2, so let's look at those last two verses, 6 and 7. Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. So we notice that the psalm begins by asking that God will bless us, and it ends by underlying the fact that he will indeed bless us. Now partially, it comes through an abundant harvest of food, and that's what we would call the inferior result. But then it concludes by once again giving the superior reason for this than it is that all ends of the earth will fear him. Or we might say it this way, that all of the earth would recognize him and would revere him and stand in awe of him. And so the psalm begins and ends with a statement that God's blessings will lead to his glory. God's will always is ultimately done and God's will always leads to his glory. Now the idea that 
God's glory is primary. It's not just a theme we find only in Psalm 67. There's a lot of other scripture that shows the same thing. And uh, I have many passages I could cite for you, but I just want to briefly look at two others, and then we'll draw some important inclusions, conclusions about the first point. Now, the first scripture that we would take note of is 1 Kings 8, verse number 60. And this was after the Israelites had just finished the building of the temple, and Solomon offered a lengthy prayer to God in which he asked God to meet the people's needs. And then he gave the reason why that God should bless his people. And this is what we read in the 60th verse. That all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. So Solomon asked for a blessing on Israel so that people everywhere would know that there is one God. That all other gods are false. That Jehovah, who is the God of Israel, he is the one God. And so he's asking for a blessing that God's name might be the one that's glorified. And I might add to that, that Moses used the same kind of reasoning when God was angry with Israel. When God would have destroyed Israel for disobedience in the wilderness, Moses, in effect, Use the same kind of reasoning with God. He said, God, if everybody, if, if you destroy your people, then everybody will have the impression that you're not true to your promises. That's not going to glorify your name. Now, of course, God knew that. Moses wasn't teaching God anything. But when Moses understood that and made a point about it, it just accentuated this fact that even though Israel was disobedient, that God has a plan and God's will is always going to be done and his plan is ultimately going to bring him glory. Now, the second passage concerns Jesus, and it's very revealing. That on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, and he understood the cruelties of the cross that he faced. He understood the physical and spiritual suffering that the cross entailed. We talked about that this morning in the sermon. And so what did Jesus ask for? Did he ask, well, God, Father, please, please deliver me from my troubles, deliver me from the death of the cross? Did he say, Father, save me, save me from this horrible death that I'm about to go through? Was that his prayer at such a critical time? Well, we read from Matthew this morning. Here's what John said when he related the same instance, or he quotes Jesus. Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now there we see that Jesus didn't ask for his own physical safety. He didn't ask for his comfort. He didn't ask to be delivered from the cross. He didn't ask for worldly success. He never asked for status in the eyes of the people of the world. He asked for what? He asked for God's glory. And God responded with, I've already glorified my name in your life, and I'm about to do it in your death. And that's what Jesus wanted. So Jesus didn't ask for anything but this. And folks, when you really have the heart of the Savior, you'll see this, that Jesus rejected the blessing of a longer life on this earth, and, he want, and to be kept safe from suffering and going to the cross, because he knew that those things are not going to lead to the greater glory of God. And what we have to do is to say with the Lord Jesus, Lord, if this thing is not going to be for your greatest glory, 
When you get down to pray, you, you think, of God, if this thing is not going to be for your greater glory, then don't give it to me. Keep that away from me. But God, if this will glorify you, then give me all of it that you can. Give me all the blessing that you can so I can glorify your name. Well, you might find that this is true. That the sufferings that you're going through might indeed be the way that God gets his greatest glory. Now, Psalm 67 and all of the Bible emphasizes that God blesses his people for the glory of his name. God wants everybody to know about his goodness, his mercy, and his love. But do you notice that's a fundamental Bible truth that's really not taught in churches today? Instead, it's all upside down. We look at God as our heavenly social worker. God's chief aim is to provide for us, which he does, to comfort us, which he does, to care for us, which he does, but also to pamper us. I mean, just, just really, just apply the baby lotion to the behind all the time. And the result of that thinking is that we turn our focus inwardly and we turn it to our needs and we perceive that God is our tool for meeting all of our personal needs. And, folks, that's what really drives the preaching in Berean. That's what makes us different from what you hear in other churches. Other churches are preaching that the universe revolves around man. It revolves around man. God is the cosmic genie who's there to meet all of our needs. That's fundamentally different from what we teach here. We preach that God is sovereign that man was created for the glory of God and that man has no other purpose on this earth but for the glory of God. That God is at the center of everything and his glory is his purpose. Now that helps you to understand why I love Puritan preaching, why I love Spurgeon preaching, why I love doctrines of grace preaching because it answers this very vital question, what is the chief end of man? Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism answers that question in its very first point. Those of you who have been here a while, you know that's the very first point of the Catechism. What is the chief aim of man? And it answers it in true biblical fashion. It says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so to sum up point one on your listening sheet, why does God bless you? God blesses so that you might fulfill your chief end, to glorify God him. When I first became pastor here 12 years ago, that was not the focus. There are many of you that told me that you'd never heard a message that said that everything that God does is for his own glory. So why does God, what is God's purpose? It's one purpose, his glory. So that answers the inquiry of God's blessings. Now secondly, is the individuals of God's blessings. God blesses so that we might glorify his name. But we say, among whom? Glorify his name with whom? Is he talking about people that already know him? Is he speaking about people that are like us? Is he talking on a wider spectrum? Maybe he's talking about everybody that's a Christian or everybody that's an American, everybody that's similar to us. Is that who God wants to show that he blesses? Well, the second part of verses 2 and 3 show that God's goal is much broader than that. The psalmist says that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Now pay attention to what the psalmist says there when he says saving health. 
That's a, a word that simply means salvation. Or John Gill liked to put it this way. He said it's a word that means Jesus. That his name might be known in all of the earth. And so God's aim is to glorify himself, not among those that are already identified with him, not just among those who are similar to us, but here among all nations of all peoples. Now, how then does God bring that glory to himself? Well, first, God glorifies himself with a message for men. God's blessings are known to all men through the message that God has given, and that is the message of the gospel. Now, the gospel is not something that's to be kept hidden. It's not something to be kept secret to ourselves, those of us have been, that have been saved. Now, the psalmist says that God's health, he means his salvation, is to be known among all the nations. And that, that is a key to understanding other parts of Scripture. It's actually integral to our understanding of John 3.16. Let me show you how that explains John 3.16 by comparing it with another Scripture. Now here, I, I think that you need to turn to the book of Revelation. And here in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, when we're through reading the Scripture, you really do need to write in the margin of your Bible, John 3.16, because this tells us how to interpret one of the most important verses that we find in Scripture. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, this is the Apostle John writing and with a vision that God has given him. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. Now notice there, or you might even want to underline these words, all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. That's the explanation of John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world... God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And you know the rest of that. Now, Revelation 7, 9, and 10 explains that word world in John 3, 16. That God loved men that come from all nations and all kindreds and people and tongues. Now, when John saw that vision in Revelation, he saw those that are chosen from God from every people group that lives on the earth. That here is every group, every cultural group, every language group, every ethnic group that's represented there before the throne of God. And you need to think about why is this so important that God should choose people that come from every nation of the world? Well, if there was a group that was left out, there are some who would say, well, the cultural barriers between Christianity and my people are just too great to overcome. We can't become Christians. It's too difficult for us to believe in Jesus. God doesn't really care about my people, my race. He doesn't care about them. My father and my grandfather, they were Muslims or they were Jews or they were Hindus or they were animists or whatever it might be. We can't become Christians, so God has no right to judge me for not believing in Jesus. Well, God's going to glorify himself by not letting anybody make that fallacious argument. Revelation 7 shows that he's going to bring to himself a, a vast number of people, a vast number of believers that come from every cultural and linguistic group, that God's gospel works above and beyond all natural barriers. And when J Jesus spoke to John, uh, rather to Nicodemus in, in John 3.16, he showed Nicodemus that not only 
would the gospel go to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles and to the rest or all the rest of the nations of the world. And not coincidentally, John wrote in another scripture, in 1 John 2, 2, he follows the very same convention where he wrote, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And the explanation of that is this, that Jesus is not only a propitiation, not only a mercy seat, not only the satisfaction to God for the sins of those who are Jews, but also for those who are the non-Jews of the world. And you see that Jesus is not, or John is not talking about, and Jesus is not actually talking about, well, I've got to include every single individual of the world, because if he did, according to John 2, 2, every single individual of the world would be saved. No, Jesus becomes a propitiation, or is a propitiation, a satisfaction to God only for those who are actually saved. There is no satisfaction to God for people who aren't saved, because if there was, they would be saved. That's what the mercy seat's for. That's what the satisfaction to God is all about. To satisfy God for their sins. And so we see very clearly that what he's talking about here is every type of person, every nationality of person, every ethnic group. And I said there is no coincidence that John recorded Jesus' words in John 3.16 and then he explained them in 1 John 2.2 and then he saw a heavenly vision in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapters. 7, 9, Revelation 7, 9, and 10 that confirms the vision that he saw. So 1 John 2, 2 explains John 3, 16. It all works its way out in the heavenly vision confirmed in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. And so we see, first of all, that God glorifies himself with a message for men. Then we see that God glorifies himself with a mandate for missions. Now let's think, think about what the psalmist said about God's salvation being seen all through, uh, uh, to all nations through his blessings. How is that possible? Well, the answer to the question is the mandate for missions. And the task of missions is not complete until there is a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, a true church among every people group of the world. And that means that we're not only to reach people that are like us, but we also got to spread the news of the gospel to all ethnic groups, in, to all people of the world, in all nations of the world. And this really helps us to understand the Great Commission. And we see that the ultimate underlying reason for the commission is nothing other than this, which is the glory of God. Now you might think, well, the ultimate goal of the commission is the salvation of men, but it's not. The salvation of men is the means to the end. And the end is the glory of God. And when you understand that fundamental truth that God is the center of the universe and not man, then we understand why the gospel has to be taken to all men because that is for the glory of God. Salvation of men brings glory to God. And let me put that to you simply in this way, that if we shirk our responsibility to give the gospel to all men, then what we have done is we refuse to give God all the glory that God deserves. And I'll be honest with you folks, because of our belief in the sovereignty of God, because we believe in election and predestination, because we believe those things, we're accused of not believing in soul winning and giving the gospel to everyone. But I'll be careful to have you note that I have never said that. And this church has never taught that. We are con That is absolutely contrary to what we teach. And I understand this. I understand the reason why that we should preach the gospel to all people a million times better, I think, a hundred times better, I might say, than a fundamentalist preacher who says that we don't understand it. 
No, I do believe that salvation is for the glory of God because God is the sovereign ruler of all and we have a mandate to preach the gospel to all nations that his blessings might be shown for the purpose of glorifying him in the entire world. Now on our listening sheet, you can note another reason that God blesses you then, that he blesses you to bring salvation to all men. Well, that brings me to the final consideration This evening, the inquiry of God's blessing is for the glory of God. The individual of God's blessings or individuals are the nations of the world. And thirdly, we have this consideration, the impact of God's blessings. Now, some might think, well, I thought that missions was all about helping people. I I thought that missions was about helping meet physical and spiritual needs. And if we say that it's all for the glory of God, then aren't we diminishing the personal importance of all of these people? Aren't we diminishing the importance of meeting real human needs? And I would say on the contrary, that this actually meets the highest need of all individuals. Note this and remember it. God's blessings meet the highest need of the individual. And we find the reason that it's true in verses 3 and 4. And you remember what I said before? Verse number 4 is the literary center of the psalm. That's emphasized very heavily in the original language. Verse 3 says, Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy. You see, when people praise God and when God is glorified in their lives, what happens to them? What happens to them? Well, praising God, it says, leads to gladness and joy. And those people that don't praise him are walking in darkness. They're bound by fears of false gods and idols. They're people without joy. The rest of verse number 4 explains in part why that's the case. It says, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon the earth. Now, do you know why we desire that this would be a Christian nation? Why do we actually desire that that America should be a Christian nation? And the reason is that there's no other ruler but God. There is none but him that's just and straight and upright in all of his dealings. There is no other ruler but God who leads us in the paths of righteousness. The word govern there in in verse number 4, that actually means guide. Psalm 23 verse 3 The psalmist says, He restoreth my soul, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And that word leadeth is the same Hebrew word as guide. It means to guide. No other ruler is going to guide us in paths of righteousness where the greatest of God's blessings can be given. Do I actually need to argue that point? I mean, is, is our president an advocate for the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Is that what he's concerned about? Is he, is he concerned that we're a godly nation? Or is he more concerned that people should be able to live out to whatever depths of depravity they choose? That's their right. On the beginning of the message, I told you that without being a part of God's church, we don't have the right to ask for blessings. We have no right to sing, God bless America, unless we're willing to acknowledge his church in America. Oh, we sing, God bless America, and the ultimate end of that is the glory of God. 
not the glory of America. No, God bless America. Why? So that we can achieve our chief end, which is to glorify you. God bless America. That, that, that's something that should never be sung with the intent that our nation will be healthy and wealthy and protected from all of our enemies without acknowledging that God has the absolute sovereign right to rule us. Now, anyone who's not a believer in Christ, I mean, all those that don't have this vital relationship to Jesus Christ and with the only true and living God, none of them have what the Apostle Peter called joy unspeakable. None of them. I mean, have you ever seen a Muslim with joy? Why are we fighting terrorism? Is it because they're just joyful people and they want everybody to be like them? Oh, if God's at the center of all things, and if He's the most beautiful, the most loving, the most powerful of all beings, then recognizing who He is and having a relationship with Him, being guided and governed by Him, that has to be the source of the greatest joy imaginable. So there's no conflict with glorifying God and the gladness of all people. People will have gladness as they glorify God, and they will glorify God as they have more gladness. That's just an unending cycle. Glorify God, you're happy. If you're happy, you'll glorify God. John Piper said that, or he suggested that we could underline this particular truth by changing one word in the answer to the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God. And he changes the word here to by. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Folks, do you realize that there are many people that hate the religious right because they believe that religion is oppressive? They believe that the righteousness of religion the rightness of religion, if you want to put it that way, that it'll infringe upon their liberties. That there's no way that you can be free and there's no way that you can be happy unless you choose against God. If you're going to be free, you've got to do your own thing. You've got to choose against God. But what is it that makes man freer than anything? Righteousness. Can I remind you what Jesus said in John 8? If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. What people don't understand is that all of us, at least those that are not saved, were held captive by the God of this world. They were bound up. They had no freedom. There was no way they could get loose. They were in bondage with no hope of escape. So this is what the psalmist says. He says, God bless us. Free the nations of the world. Free them so they'll know the one true and living God. And that's where liberty is found. It's found in Jesus. So what do we learn tonight? Well, we learn that it is absolutely right to ask God for a blessing. God desires for you to have a blessing so that you might meet your chief end to glorify Him. God blesses us for His own glory. That's the chief aim of your life. Now, then on the last, uh, the last thought in your listening sheet is that God give me no blessings that are not for your glory. Now, if you've heard all that I've said tonight, you recognize there is no such thing as a blessing that's not for God's glory. Those things we call curses. Those are curses. If it's not for God's glory, then it's not good for you. And that means that it's a curse, not a blessing. So I hope that all of us would be like Jabez. And I hope you know that unless God blesses you, you don't really have anything of value. And 
Use what you have always to give God his glory. Now, as I close, let me just ask you another question. Or let me mention another religious fad also. Do you need to go through 40 days of purpose? Is that what you need to do? That's a great religious fad, isn't it? 40 days of purpose. Oh, here's what God demands. He demands a lifetime of purpose. And the purpose is one thing. Glorify him. It's, you, don't need four, you don't need a book. You don't, you don't have to spend ten ninety nine or whatever it is, $15 to buy the book. I'll just tell you, just do this. Glorify God. That's the entire purpose of your life, and that's all it ever was. God created us to glorify him, and you can't glorify him until you know him. And when you know him, you'll glorify him by telling other people about him. That's our purpose. The psalmist said, God, be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. And he said, Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon earth. That is the real blessing from God. Let's pray. Father, we do come to unite with just gratitude, thankfulness for the fact that you do bless us. As we've talked about this, that is the thing that you are characteristically, one of your characteristics is that you love people and that you are good. You're just characteristically good and you desire that for your people. And you know, Lord, that you, you've taught us through this message that the way that we're going to be happiest and the way that all the nations of the world will see what we have is when we give glory to you. Help us to be people that speak to others about your word. Help us to be missionaries in the places where we are, at work, at school, just uh, wherever we are, Lord, to let people know who you are. Live it through our lives among the many other things that we do, even as we're going to look at this very, very same subject in a way next week as we talk about influencing people for Christ, that it's something that needs to be seen in our lives every single day of our lives. And by that, it will influence other people. So, Lord, bless, uh, bless your people. We thank you for those who have stayed and listened to the message tonight. And Lord, help us always to give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.